Good News Ministries of GNN.org presents The Story in the Bible. Now, here is Terry Modica. When you are not enthusiastically in my love and giving out my love, you have some darkness in you. Your lampstand is not lit anymore, at least not fully. An example from my own life to show just how concretely this happens. When I was a child. My uh, parents were Protestant. My father was a minister. And this is a uh, mainstream denomination, middle of the road. I was taught that the miracles that happened in the Bible were just for getting the church started. And I, even as a young kid, would look around me and say, you know, we sure could use some miracles today. And I'd experience my own troubles in life and say, gee, I sure could use some miracles today. That's not very fair of God to not have the supernatural at work anymore. Ever since I can remember, Jesus was my best friend. I don't remember when my conversion started because Jesus was always my best friend. I didn't know the Father very well, and I definitely did not know who the Holy Spirit was. It's just some force or something. And in my teenage years, as I began to seek my own identity and figure out who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do with my life, I became determined to find out that God really wasn't so unfair, that the supernatural really did exist today, that God still loved us as much and would do miracles for us today like he did for those people in the Bible. So I began to look around me to find the supernatural. And I didn't find it in my parents' church. I did find it where the world was offering it, and that's called the occult. I began to have seances. Well, it all started with the Ouija board. That's how I discovered that there was supernatural powers in this world. My father had, not knowing that there was anything occultic about it, had gotten us for a Christmas gift, Christmas, Jesus' birthday, this Ouija board. And my sister, who's two years younger than me, she and I were playing with this Ouija board. And, you know, it's got the little planchette, the little pointer thing on there. We'd ask it questions, and it would spell words out. It would point to letters. It was us that was pushing it. Well, one day after church... We come home from church and go right to the Ouija board. What is sick about this? And we asked it a question. What is the meaning of church? And the answer that it spelled out was P-E-O-P-L-E. People? Huh? No, church is that building we go to on Sunday and worship God. I expected an answer, something like worshiping God. When my father comes home from doing his uh, clergy duties at church, Daddy, Daddy, what is the definition of church? Could the definition be people? And he goes, well, yeah, actually, that's a very good definition. And he explains to us why it's really the people who are the church, not the building that we meet in. That's the first time I had heard that concept. And I thought, wow, I didn't know this answer. My sister didn't know this answer. So how did that answer come through the Ouija board? It must be supernatural. And that's what began my journey in the occult. And I got involved in almost everything except for Satanism, Satan worship, because I did not believe Satan was real. Ralph and I are high school sweethearts. We met in our senior year. At the beginning of the senior year, before we had gotten together, I had eyed him up and I had picked him out. I wanted to date him. So I used witchcraft. I cast a spell on him. <laughs> Little did I know that God had planned for us to get together. I didn't need to do that. I had been praying ever since I first found out what divorce was, that God would pick who my husband would be. After seven years of exploring the occult, 
that best friend relationship with Jesus, gone. During those seven years, it was a gradual process of losing him. I used to, even when having seances, pray to Jesus and ask him to help us do this. Jesus was still a part of my life. I didn't turn from Jesus to the occult. At least I didn't think so. I thought Satan wasn't real. Therefore, the only source of the supernatural was God. Therefore, the more I learned about the occult, the more I was learning about God. But I was just learning more lies. Satan doesn't mind if he's hidden, if I don't believe in him, because then he's able to trick me more. And he doesn't mind giving credit to God, because if I think what Satan is doing is really coming from God, then I'm going to keep doing it. So after seven years of this, Satan or the various demons of the occult had tricked my mind enough to convince me that I didn't need God anymore. These supernatural powers were working with or without God. I could make a spell, and it was me that was doing it. It was me that had the power. That's what the occult says. It's not the demons that have the power. It's not God that has the power. It's me that has the power. I am God. It's back to the original sin in the Garden of Eden, the original sin of Satan himself, wanting to be like God. Ralph and I, when we were dating, I tried to get him involved in the occult. I put him into a trance, like a medium, so that he could contact the spirit world, because this was so cool. Well, Ralph did not have the background of interest in this that I did. The demons were, like, surprised that this new character was coming in. Like, who's he? You know, we haven't worked on him yet. We haven't prepared for him to be deceived yet. So when I put Ralph into the trance and I said, now look around you with your spiritual eyes and tell me what you see. What he saw was a demon. I had seen what I thought were people who had died, but they were really demons pretending to be this because scripture makes it very clear that when people die, they go someplace, heaven, hell, or purgatory, but they don't stay around here. It was always demons who would disguise themselves as people who had died. But when Ralph saw this being, he, re- he had not had a chance to be deceived yet, so he recognized it for what it was. And he was not a converted person yet. He barely knew Jesus. He was baptized, but he barely even knew who Jesus was. Yet he recognized the evilness of this. He woke himself up out of the trance and ran out of my house as fast as he could go. But he told me that it felt like a black hole that just wanted to suck his soul into it and destroy him. That's what it felt like to him. Do you think that was a warning sign for me? Do you think I believed it? When we got married, I was still involved in this stuff. And along comes Father Ed for a visit. This was all set up by God. God was not going to let me go off into the darkness any longer. And Father Ed had just called us to see, hi, how are you doing? He wasn't planning to spend his vacation time with us yet because that trend hadn't started with us yet. It was on a whim that he called, quote-unquote whim, right? And on a whim, while we were talking, he said, do you mind if I come next week to spend vacation time with you? And I said, hey, Ralph, what about? And he said, yeah, sure. And while Father Ed was visiting with us, I experienced something. There was something in Father Ed that I wasn't finding in the occult. Ed didn't tell me that the occult was evil, although he knew I was involved in it. He didn't tell me that we should be going to church even though we had stopped going to church because, hey, I couldn't find a church that believed what I believed about the need to evangelize ghosts. Father Ed, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
He had, a few years before, received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So it was alive in him. We all have it by baptism and confirmation. Baptism of the Holy Spirit in the charismatic renewal sense is a time of choosing to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, not just with Jesus, or not just with Jesus and the Father. And he had had that experience. And he was alive in that relationship with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the spirit of truth. This spirit was at work in my home. I didn't know what it was that was going on, but I knew he had something that I didn't have, and there was something supernatural about it, although he wasn't working miracles in front of me, but there was something supernatural. I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was I was feeling or sensing, but I wanted it. So at that point in time, I recommitted my life back to God. And because Father Ed had found this aliveness of the faith through the charismatic renewal, well, guess what he did for me? He put me in touch with local prayer groups. He said, well, Terry, if you want to really be alive in this, go to a prayer meeting. That was the beginning of my conversion to the Catholic Church. It was all part of God's bigger plan. Not only did meeting the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of truth, teach me all the lies about the occult, the Holy Spirit showed me the truth about the Eucharist. Once Father Ed explained that to me, did I hunger for that? showed me the truth about the other sacraments, the truth about how wonderful going to Mass is, and that was why I converted to the Catholic Church. And since then, I have been discovering God's realm of the supernatural. That was back in 77. This is why I can stand up here today. The Holy Spirit has been training me. The Holy Spirit has been giving me the words to speak. If it were not for the Holy Spirit, I would be too timid to stand up here and do this. But I don't even get nervous. And I have talked to people who, as a profession, are always speaking before groups, years and years of it, and they still get nervous. I have an outline, but I don't have a speech. I'm not sure. I mean, I look over my talk the night before while I'm falling asleep. I could be very nervous, but I'm not because I know that the Holy Spirit is somebody I can trust. My story and the results of learning the difference between the occult powers and God's powers are in the book called Overcoming the Power of the Occult. It's another whole story I don't have time for right now about the miracles that God produced to get that book published. It was just an example of how when we start to let our zeal, our enthusiasm for God, our love for God fade, we get more and more into the darkness. But God always has a plan to bring us out of it, just like he did with the Israelites. We're at the point in the story with the Israelites where they have been compromising more and more with the Canaanites and their religions. After Joshua died, about one generation, a little bit less than 50 years, here's the state of the situation, the state of the land. Remember how God had said all the way back to Abraham that the whole promised land was going to belong to the Israelites. Well, about 50 years after Joshua died, the only thing that the Israelites owned of the promised land was just a few little pieces of land. Because what had happened was they had conquered a lot of territory, and then once they started making compromises with the Canaanites, the Canaanites began to get it all back. The Israelites would lose battles with the Canaanites. They'd nearly starve to death. This is a summary of the rest of the book of Joshua in just a few sentences. After losing battles and nearly starving to death through famines and through being conquered, then they'd finally turn back to God and say, Help! And God would help them. He would forgive them. He would raise up 
military leaders to see them through the next bout of battles. And as long as Israel was keeping their focus on God and turning to him for help, these military leaders led them through victory after victory. But once they began to make compromises again, they began to lose again. And these military leaders were called judges. And the next book of the Bible is the book of Judges. Now, a judge does not mean someone who sits in court and figures out whether someone's guilty or not. This kind of judge was just simply a military leader. And the cycle kept going. The people would lose, turn to God for help, they'd win, they'd get comfortable, and they'd turn away from God again. Comfort is probably the biggest curse. We think it's a blessing. But in our society, if you compare our state of spirituality compared to other countries, third world countries where there's not a whole lot of comfort, other countries where it's not third world, but it's not as advanced or materialistic or comfortable as our country, you'll find that those other countries have a stronger spirituality, stronger Christianity, much more enthusiastic in their faith, And God's supernatural powers are working more there than they do here. In the Old Testament, there were lots of miracles. In the New Testament, there were lots of miracles. Today, in other countries where there is less comfort, there are more miracles than there are here today. I don't want to spend time on it, but I could tell you lots of stories about fantastic miracles that we don't see here that are going on other places. Some of them you've probably heard about in terms of apparitions and things related to that. But there is the multiplication of food going on in other places to help the needy. People being raised from the dead. Everything that Jesus did, we as Christians are supposed to be able to do. In John 14:12, Jesus said, If you believe in me, you'll do the same things that I do. Even greater things than these. But we don't see anybody. Anybody here raised somebody from the dead lately? Comfort is a curse. We do not like to suffer. When we were little, our diapers were cleaned right away because it's too uncomfortable to get diaper rash. And from that day forward, we are taught that you have a headache, you go to the medicine cabinet. Your stomach's upset, you go to the medicine cabinet. You get the sniffles for more than a few days, you go to the doctor. The medicine cabinet's no longer enough. If we get bone cancer, let's euthanize ourselves. Because that is so painful. We need to find comfort. And if the only comfort we can find is in death, then that's what we'll opt for. Euthanasia is coming so popular. We're still in the beginning stages of it. It's going to be as acceptable someday and not too far in the future as abortion is now. And it's not just those who are in severe pain that are going to get euthanized. It's anybody who either they themselves think they're not comfortable enough or someone else is deciding that they're not comfortable enough. And when it's someone else, you know who's really uncomfortable? It's that family member who doesn't want to suffer through taking care of that person. Comfort is our biggest curse. It's my personal belief. It's our biggest curse in this country that keeps the morals declining and keeps our spiritual lives from not being as powerful as they were in the book of Acts from miracles happening in our own lives as powerfully as they did when Jesus walked the earth. So as the Israelites were going in this cycle, when they got comfortable, they turned away from God. When things got uncomfortable, they turned back to God. Through this process, because they kept turning away, they gradually got weaker and weaker. The enemy, meanwhile, 
was taking advantage of this and getting stronger and stronger. The Canaanites, many of whom had been wiped out, were now remultiplying and filling up the territory again. The Phoenicians, neighboring Phoenicians, began to settle in the northern Canaan territory. The Philistines began to fill in the southern territory of Canaan. The Philistines are going to be playing a big role. Who was the most famous Philistine that we know about who David conquered? Goliath. This is the time when the Philistines are beginning to become a problem because the Israelites were not doing what God had asked them to do. They were making compromises. Israel was also losing its sense of being community. Some of the villages, they were too far apart and they lost touch with each other. And it began to become every clan for itself. They begin to lose their sense of we all are in this together. And they begin to fight amongst themselves. And some of the Israelites figured the solution for this disunity is to provide a king to the Israelite nation. A king who could unite all these different clans as one single nation. Now God, meanwhile, had all this time in saying, I am your king. You don't need any king besides me. If you get a king besides me, a human king, you're going to end up with a human kingdom. You're going to end up with lots of problems because no king is perfect. But the Israelites were saying, no, 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 no. We want a king. You don't know what you're talking about, God. We need a king. Look at how we're falling apart under your kingship, God. You're not doing things our way, so we need a king to solve this problem. We've come up with a solution. We're about to get into the book of Kings, but there's two heroes in the book of Judges I want to mention. It's when they're just being guided by military leaders. When the battle was finished, they no longer had the need for that leader, so they were on their own again. Instead of turning to God, they were on their own again. Well, Gideon, we've all heard of Gideon Bibles, right? In every motel room, right? Here's where the name Gideon comes from. It's in chapter 6 of the book of Judges. Gideon was somebody who was called to ministry, called to be God's servant in order to lead the people back into unity with God. And Gideon's not thinking very highly of himself. He thinks, who, me? I'm not a judge. I'm not a military leader. I can't do this. Why me, God? I can't. I can't do this. We ever feel that way? In verse 12, just before I get into his response to God, let's take a look because it's an interesting note here. When he is being told of his vocation, he's being called here, it's through an angel that God appears to him to say, I'm calling you for this mission. And notice how the angel first addresses him. The Lord be with you. Sound familiar? This is where we get what we say at the beginning of Mass. We're in Judges. Chapter 6. Going down to verse 17, Gideon is like, I'm not God. You can't possibly be calling me to this. I want some proof. I want to find out this is really you, God, and not just some demon or my imagination. So he says, give me a sign in verse 17. Give me a sign that you are speaking with me. And if you look down in verse 36, he's asking for yet another sign. God gives him the first sign he asked for, and Gideon's still not convinced. And in God's infinite mercy and patience, he keeps putting up with this. Gideon, in verse 36, says, 
If indeed you are going to save Israel through me, as you promised, as I think you're telling me, I'm going to put this woolen fleece on the threshing floor. You ever hear putting out a fleece before the Lord as a test? That's where it comes from. Putting out a fleece means testing God, and here's where this comes from. He said, I'm putting this woolen fleece on the threshing floor. If dew comes on the fleece alone and leaves the ground dry, then I'll know it's you. God does that, so Gideon says, okay, one more time. This time, if the dew is not on the fleece, but it's on the ground, then I'll know it's you. And that was the final thing that convinced Gideon. The point here, why I'm bringing this particular scripture out, is that it is okay to test God, to ask for proof, if our reason for doing that is, it's hard to believe that God's choosing me. As opposed to, it's hard to believe that God's doing something good. His word, the Bible, is full of what God wants from us. We're not to test him in those things, except for one place in Malachi. When God is dealing with tithing, with stewardship, financial stewardship, he says, give me 10% of what you earn, what you grow in your crops, and for us it's what you earn. If you give me 10% off the top of everything that you get in, then I will multiply back to you what you give to me. Well, how many times? hundredfold. And God says, if you don't believe me, test me in this. I'll do it. But everything else in Scripture, the only times that we are to test God is when we are in the process of discerning whether or not what he's asking us to do is really what he's asking us to do. Another person I want to point out in the book of Judges is Samson. Remember Samson and Delilah? Chapter 13. His mother, before he was born, first consecrated him to the Lord. He consecrated himself to the Lord by agreeing to not drink anything alcoholic and to not cut his hair. The purpose of this was to show that he was set apart. He was different from the rest of the people around him. His consecration to the Lord made him holy. And remember what holy means? being set apart from the world, cutting his hair and choosing not to drink anything. It was a visible sign to himself and everyone else that he was specially consecrated to the Lord. And in return, the Lord gave him his ministry, and his ministry included having the gift of very strong strength, supernatural strength. And with his strength, he was able to defeat the enemies of Israel. He defeated the Philistines. In chapter 15 of Judges, verses 15 and 16, just to show you the strength that Samson had because he had consecrated himself to the Lord and said yes to ministry. He's fighting the Philistines here. Near him was a fresh jawbone of an ass. He reached out, grasped it, and with it killed a thousand men. Then Samson said, With the jawbone of an ass I have piled them in a heap. With the jawbone of an ass I have slain a thousand men. Well, think of this. If Samson could defeat a thousand men with the jawbone of an ass, think of what God can do with a complete ass like me. <laughs> and you. In chapter 16, his girlfriend Delilah tricks him into revealing where his strength comes from. She belongs to the enemy. See, Samson's making a little compromise here. He's, he's mixing with the enemy. 
she tricks him. He reveals his secret that his consecration comes from, is shown by the cutting of his hair. So she, when he's sleeping, cuts his hair. When he discovers it, he realizes that he is no longer consecrated to the Lord. So therefore, his strength is gone. His supernatural powers are gone. And the Philistines were able to capture him and defeat the Israelites. In verse 23 onward of chapter 16 there, it shows how Samson got his strength back. He went through a spiritual growing process where he went from the attitude of, it's not my fault, she cut my hair off, to, I broke my vow to God. I broke my consecration to God. Yes, Delilah is the one who used the scissors, but I'm at fault. I broke my vow of consecration to God. Therefore, I need to repent. And so he does. By now he's blinded. He's tied between the pillars of the Colosseum. It's not the Colosseum, but (laughs) wherever the Philistines have him tied to. And as he makes that moment of repentance, he realizes, by now, this whole process of repenting, it's taking time, and therefore his hair is growing. It's not so much that the hair is what matters, but his belief in his consecration that's what matters. With that renewal of his consecration, he gets his strength back, he uses his strength to knock the columns down and knock the whole place down. He sacrifices his own life. By consecrating himself once again to the Lord, he sacrifices his own life because the building topples on top of him as well as all the Philistines. Who does that remind us of? Who sacrificed his life for us? Right. So there's another foreshadowing of Jesus. Before we get into the book of Kings, probably everybody has thought at one time or another, in thinking about the Old Testament, how could God kill so many people? How could God do so many punishments? That's not the God I know today. Is the God of the Old Testament different than the God of the New Testament? Of course not. But we need to look at the stories in the Old Testament with the understanding of what is God trying to teach the people of the time and what is God trying to teach us about being in that covenant relationship with him. Because the Israelites kept turning away from God, God had to keep saying, now wait a minute, turn back to me. Do things my way and things will work out. All the commandments, all the rules are for our benefit. It's not to make our life more difficult, to give us constraints, just to test us to see whether we'll obey or not. When Adam and Eve were told, don't eat of that tree of knowledge of good and evil, it wasn't just to test them to see whether they'd obey or not. It was because he was protecting us from knowing evil. So everything that happens in the Old Testament is part of God trying to protect us and God trying to teach us how to live in that covenant relationship, how to truly make him our God so that we can truly be his people. You've been listening to Story in the Bible. For more faith builders or to learn more about this ministry, come visit our website. You'll find online resources and lots more to help you know the Father's love and grow closer to Christ and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Visit gnm.org today.